Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Albert Garcia Romeo. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm very good. And we had a couple of emails before where it, it sounded like maybe you didn't quite get to do everything you wanted to do, but maybe you did. And so I'm very curious to hear about that. And I try not to hear too much before recording because I want the listeners to get everything as well. Actually, I, I meant to say this before recording. Yeah, I wanted to ask, last week or two weeks ago, I read The Onion a lot, the satirical online newspaper. Mm-hmm. Online newspaper. Yeah. And it had a couple articles that were making fun of, um, of psychedelics. And they were really funny. And I, I was thinking, oh, I'll send them to you. And I thought, oh, someone's already probably sent them to you. And then I thought, I'm kind of curious because you're in a field that a lot of people make a lot of jokes about. Mm-hmm. And so people treat it alternatively, reverent, reverentially, uh, spiritually, mystically, but also making jokes about it and sometimes fearfully. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a big range of, of reactions and responses to the work we're doing, for sure. Yeah, how does that feel on your side? I mean, I, I presume the jokes are still funny. And I mean, certainly a common thing. I'm not, I don't know if, how it happens when people are there with you in sessions, but I feel like psychedelics lend a lot to laughter in the experience of it. What's it like? We do see some laughter when we're doing our sessions, but honestly, most of the time it, that's uh, not a huge focus of what we're doing. I mean, and we're doing these types of dosing sessions in a slightly different way than you, you'd normally see people doing them, you know, recreationally. And so there's kind of like an inner uh, inward focus uh, aspect of these sessions where most of the time people aren't really interacting with us at all. And we're just kind of there uh, keeping track of them, make sure that their vitals are good and that they're doing well. Um, and so in those cases, you know, it's a little bit less social, I would say. Um, and as a result, we see, um, I mean, we do get laughter and tears and other stuff, but um, yeah, it's it's not as giggly as, as you might um, suspect from some of the more uh, recreational types of uh, experiences, I'm guessing. Okay. So, the, I mean, this is under the guy, under the rubric of set and setting? Uh, yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. So what you're, I guess, yeah. So what you're doing is, is, is different from, I mean, going to therapist for therapy is different than talking with friends. With friends, you might joke around and get a drink together. With a therapist, it's, it's more, you know, forgetting about uh, psychedelics for the therapist. It's, it's a more serious conversation. Yeah. I mean, it's so it's as different there. as those things. Yep, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm glad I asked that. Cause I didn't think about that, but well, so what is it like when you, I don't, I don't know if you saw those onion articles or other things like it, or when you see like movies where it's treated, is it still funny? Is or is it, are you thinking like, Oh man, they're not, they're not getting it. Or what's it like? Uh, no, I, I definitely, you know, I find a lot of that stuff funny. Um, I'm not sure which articles specifically you mentioned from the Onion. I hadn't, uh, hadn't uh, seen any recently, but um, yeah, I've seen some funny stuff out there um, in terms of, uh, yeah, satire and just in general, like you're talking about in, in comedy films and stuff, jokes. I mean, I don't think it's something that shouldn't be joked about at all. To the contrary, you know, there are a lot of funny um, aspects of what, you know, people can go through in these types of experiences and laughter, you know, as you mentioned, is a huge one, a huge uh, experience that people can go through having a lot of just insights and, and laughing and, and enjoyment, you know, positive mood. So I think that's generally a good thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't take it. Um, obviously if it's satire, I mean, it's meant to be, 
something that's humorous and not, I don't necessarily think of it as uh, serious. I think the problem that I'm more concerned about is, um, you know, something else you alluded to earlier, which is there can be quite like a reverential type of tone to some of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's and sometimes get a little bit blown out of proportion. Same with some of the figures in the field, which, you know, we had a big um, type of problem like that with Timothy Leary in the 1960s and, you know, really reifying these figures and then, um, you know, learning they're, they're only human, of course. And, you know, that comes along with pitfalls as well. So um, it's it's interesting because of the amount of media coverage and and actually the amount of time I, I spend talking to journalists, which is much more than I would have guessed, you know, when I got into the work. So, well, I found, while you're speaking, I took the liberty of looking. I found one of them. It's a the the headline is "Bird that can read everyone's thoughts." Welcomed as keynote speaker of psychedelics conference. <laughs> well, that that one's probably <laughs> specifically related to a very large psychedelic conference that just happened in Denver last month. Uh, and I, and I actually had kind of noted uh, I've been traveling quite a lot for work and I've been, you know, at that conference in Denver, the psychedelic science conference. Um, but there was also, you know, um, some other regular conferences. I think the psychedelic science conference in particular lent itself to a little bit of, um, you know, poking fun because, you know, I, as I was speaking to other scientists, they were saying, wow, there's 12,000 people in attendance. You know, how many of those folks are scientists or what, you know, and I said, well, there's really only about, you know, a couple hundred scientists in the field who study this seriously. So, you know, the rest of the, those people are, um, you know, enthusiasts or they're medical or mental health practitioners. So they're coming from very different backgrounds. And that included a lot of folks who, you know, are definitely outside the uh, the normal mainstream culture, you know, much more uh, into some of these countercultural things. And yeah, it was interesting to see the mix of people there because we had uh, politicians, sports figures, pop music singers, um, as well as people like, you know, Michael Pollan and authors. And there was, you know, a good contingent of scientists. I mean, um, pretty much everyone that that works with me at my lab was there. And, uh, you know, we did get to talk about some serious science, but um, it was it was a much more open and broad conversation. And so that, I guess, is probably what the uh, that article is getting at. It reminds me in my I mean, I have a Ph.D. in physics and it's in some ways similar, in some ways different to physics 100 to 150 years ago when relativity and quantum were coming about and people were trying to wrestle with there being a top speed, you know, can't go faster than the speed of light. And that means things are relative. And that what if the laws of nature are fundamentally probabilistic? What does that mean? And how do things fall into when you measure, when you don't measure things or wave function, when you do measure them, they, they're not. And it's mind blowing and not everyone gets it really, really well, but it's also undeniable. It's like it's happening and there's nothing you can do to stop it because the experiments keep happening. They keep getting these results and they keep testing things and things are different than they expected. And it pops up everywhere in looking at the cosmos to understanding how things work. And then things come out like lasers and uh, atomic energy. So it feels something like that, that great a change. Although, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head to be honest, because, um, you know, I really am a big fan of, uh, you know, Thomas Kuhn's work on scientific revolutions. And, you know, he often talks about, 
um, you know, the shifts in the model from a heliocentric, you know, to uh, or from geocentric to heliocentric models of the universe, and also, you know, the very large shift in, you know, uh, physics that came about in the beginning of the 20th century. And, and that, you know, I think that's fascinating because he, you know, thought about those as paradigm shifts, specifically in, in ways in which uh, the scientific establishment was um, really trying to wrestle with and make sense of uh, an entirely new way of thinking about, um, you know, certain phenomena and, you know, in those cases, more physical phenomena. In these cases, I think we are, we're talking more about the mind and mental health, but there's a lot of similarities and overlap there. Um, and I think it's uh, fascinating to see it playing out because there are a lot of what you would consider physicalist or reductionistic views of the brain and the mind, which have predominated neuroscience and psychiatry for, um, you know, at least the last 50 years, if not longer. And I think that what we're seeing now is a shift um, that's a little bit more holistic. It takes a little bit more of the first person subjective experience into the viewpoint uh, and the conversation. And it also allows for things like, you know, spiritual experiences or things that you wouldn't normally talk about, I guess, in, in a sort of psychiatric standard psychiatric conversation. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that, that it does have that sort of flavor of this um, paradigm shift or this change in the way that uh, people are thinking and speaking. Do you think of yourself in the middle of a paradigm shift? I mean, paradigm shifts are, can be really big. I mean, heliocentrism from non-heliocentrism. Uh, and if so, you, you talk about witnessing it, but you're actually, I mean, to be at Johns Hopkins is to be in the middle of it. So do you think of yourself, if you do think of yourself as in the middle of, of such a shift, do you think of yourself as as ushering it along, playing a role in that shift? Uh, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm any sort of, sort of main central figure, but, I, you know, certainly I'm helping, um, trying to help move the work along um, in terms of understanding how these uh, substances can be useful, you know, what kinds of experiences people are reporting back to us about. And, you know, in, in many ways, yeah, how do we bridge these two different worlds or universes that um, if you look at the history of uh, psychedelic use, you know, it's been kind of in several different camps. Um, you know, and one of those camps has been much more rooted in indigenous uh, cultures and shamanic practices, and they had a sort of spiritual orientation. Um, and, you know, you got this sort of uh, recreational uh, group that that sprang up. You know, I mean, obviously, people have been experimenting with drugs for many years, but I mean, specifically in the 1960s in the counterculture, and then later again in the 1980s with MDMA, you know, you had these very specific um, countercultures that came up experimenting with uh, drugs like psychedelics and uh, kind of working them into a, a subculture, you know, whether that be the sort of uh, music that, you know, the acid rock and, and that type of psychedelia that emerged in the 1960s or, um, you know, more of this type of um, electronic dance music and rave scene that was um, really developing in the 80s and 90s. Um, but in, in any case, you know, they have their sort of understanding and practices around using these these substances, whether you're talking about indigenous peoples coming from ancient traditions or, you know, much more modern uh, types of folks. But then, you know, what you have now is a whole generation of medicine, uh, you know, medical practitioners and scientists who are trying to 
unravel what these drugs do and how they work. Um, and they're coming very much from their own, own sort of scientific background and perspective. And so there, there is a little bit of a clash of the, of these worlds, I think. And that's what we're seeing at these big conferences with, uh, you know, thousands of people because they are really coming from and representing all those different types of lineages, including shamanic practitioners, um, you know, as well as medical doctors and scientists and people who are really much more coming from that um, recreational burning man, you know, type of um, culture as well. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating to see the intersection of all this and kind of uh, try to, um, you know, as one of my colleagues says, shepherd it from going off the rails because there is, I think, a risk for what we saw um, back in the 1960s and 70s to happen again, which was an, an, a huge amount of backlash um, against these types of uh, substances in the 1970s that really set the scientific research back uh, decades. And thankfully, it was, um, you know, in the last 20 or so years that we've been able to see some more progress being made there. And it's, and I think it's very encouraging. So many questions I want to follow up on, and I do want to get back to your experience. I, do you mind indulging me a bit more because uh, on how much, if if, the, if if any, that you and your uh, scientific peers look at ancient traditions? Um, I ask this because because indigenous cultures are very interesting to me because the ones that persist today generally hang on by a thread, right? Tend to live more sustainably than we do. Much more, yeah. I mean, some going back tens to hundreds of thousands of years, which is much more sustainable than, you know, we're looking wreckage in decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so like I've had a lot of guests who've lived among them. One of them lived among the Matses in Peru, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, I mean, part of his being there was, I think, learning to be a shaman. I'm not sure exactly. It wasn't the main topic of conversation, but ayahuasca was a part of it. And when I, my exposure to ayahuasca culture here is, it seems like a really popular thing among Silicon Valley types, maybe. And there's some groups that I belong to. I once went to a party and like everyone was talking about ayahuasca. I've never tried it. And they like bring shamans up to near here so that people can do retreats. And it feels like they're, I feel like they're kind of not getting the full, um, they're kind of, how do I put it? Getting a, it's not quite like going to the zoo as opposed to really living somewhere and and seeing what the flora and fauna is like. Um, and I I don't know if I did this blog post. I started to write a blog post on possibly the primary. Oh, this is looking at it from a, a sustainability perspective. Possibly the primary beneficiary of all this interest in ayahuasca would be Delta Airlines or whoever flies from America to Peru the most, because people are spending so much money on flying around back and forth. And most of that's going to burning fossil fuels. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's become a whole cottage industry around ayahuasca tourism, where a lot of people are basically, you know, going down to Central or South America, trying to find people, practitioners who can, you know, ha- take them on retreats or journeys and then um, get back. And and yeah, it's become a, a thing. You know, I think there's actually been problems in terms of the sustainability of just the plants that they use to make ayahuasca, um, you know, not to mention, you know, the problems that you noted with uh, fossil fuels and travel, international travel and stuff. Um, but, you know, I think you're very 
uh, spot on here when you're talking about this idea of like going to the zoo or, um, you know, I really have talked about this as what I call the Disneyfication of psychedelics, which is really about kind of commodifying it, turning it into a sort of capitalist uh, kind of like carnival ride where uh, you can, you know, hey, to take your ticket and go to the amusement park and then come back and tell everybody how you did this and, you know, what kind of a wild experience you had. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a little bit troubling because there are, um, uh, both, you know, I think, uh, problems there in terms of, you know, what you might think of as, uh, cultural appropriation. Um, but there's also, you know, not, there's a big opportunity for, uh, an inauthentic kind of, uh, engaging in that type of, of practice in a, a way that, that I don't think really honors or, um, is in touch with the traditions that they're coming from. Um, and so, you know, it becomes this sort of almost like, a, a, you know, your checklist of all the cool things that you've done that you can tell all your friends, you know, when you're at a party in Brooklyn about how you went to do, uh, you know, ayahuasca and a retreat in Peru. And then you had a, you know, you did yoga classes after that. And then you had your vegan breakfast and you came back and now you feel so much more spiritually enlightened, you know, so... I think that there's there's some risks there. There's some um, potential perils, but also, you know, to play the devil's advocate, um, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing that people are having these experiences or that they're getting, um, you know, the opportunity to experience uh, and come into contact with that type of thinking. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, how is it being done? Is it being done respectfully and in a way that's also mutually beneficial um, as opposed to extractive, um, meaning, you know, a lot of what, you know, culturally in, imper in, in terms of imperialism, um, places like South America have basically been um, seen as places where we can go down there and extract from there and, and not really try to inject anything of value back in. And, you know, I think looking at something like Chiquita Banana or those types of situations where we go down there to get um, certain resources that are available there um, is a great example. Yeah, I feel like they they solved that problem by putting the word eco in front of tourist or tourism, and then they're like, okay, solved. Now it's ecotourism. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I'm perhaps being a bit jaded there. <laughs> Although talking about, yeah, I, I think you have a, a pretty um, what's the word magnanimous view of of yeah, maybe they might not be getting some perfect experience, but hey, they're getting an experience and, and it's not like there's rules, like it has to be reverential or perfect or something like that. You know, I think you can really fall too far on either side of the spectrum of extremism and, and really being a sort of, um, you know, zealot about this is how it has to happen. It has to be done. And then, and then I think you start to lose something there um, because it's just kind of like, well, if you're going to uh, you know, pray, then you need to pray in this specific tradition and you have to use this specific prayer and these practices, or you should go to this particular shrine. You know, it gets very, very um, narrow-minded very quickly if you wanted to say that, you know, there's only one right way to do this, especially because people have done this for so long, you know, I've experimented with these substances for so long. Um, but at the same time, if you're just so loosey-goosey and basically, you know, doing things in a way that I, I think it can get to, um, you know, a place of being overboard and probably even dangerous or 
uh, certainly, you know, problematic in, in ways. And, you know, we've seen that too, in terms of um, the, some of these uh, ayahuasca tourists, you know, encountering problems, including being taken advantage of sexually or financially. Um, and so, you know, people have to be careful because um, by nature, these types of substances can produce really powerful effects. And so it's not to be taken lightly. Yeah, I guess when, I, when I've been invited to participate in these things, I, I feel like there's a couple of things that go through my head. Is it, it feels like a potentially big thing. It could be a big part of my life, a, a big shift. But also, I don't feel like there's anything missing, so I don't feel like I have to fix anything. I'm also not sure what I'm trying to get, so I, I don't feel like there's a purposeful reason to do it. Just because people are inviting me or other people are doing it doesn't seem like enough. And when I look at the people I know who do it, I don't see a change in their life. In like, I don't see um, how do I put this. If I know people who exercise, I can see that their physique changes, or their way of walking changes, or their level of confidence. Or if someone takes uh, um, self-defense classes, they tend to become more confident. And I can't tell the people who do ayahuasca or DMT, things like that, I don't see the change. And I think that it seems like they feel like they've had something. And sometimes I wonder if it gives you a feeling of change, like the feeling of change. Well, I, I absolutely agree with you that just doing the substance itself is not necessarily enough to make these types of uh, big shifts, uh, even though people will often like to claim that they are um, you know, it, there's, and that's why actually, you know, I was kind of differentiating what we do from with psychedelic therapy, as opposed to doing, um, you know, what often people may be doing these types of ceremonies, which is more about chasing the experience, um, as opposed to really doing any deep work to then create a lasting shift in their, you know, whatever that might be their personality, the way that they, um, do different types of, um, you know, engage in their relationships and stuff. So, well, I appreciate your indulging me in, in going in this direction a bit. Uh, I hadn't meant to go this far, but um, not at all. No, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're able to get into it. I mean, you know, as you said, those those types of articles and stuff are pretty common. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, jokes and a lot of um, reverence too about the type of work that's going on in the field. So, I think it's good to just have a sort of critical eye. I, uh, towards all that in, instead of just you know taking it all uh, at face value because there's certainly a lot of people there who um, I think may not have the scientific background and and so like you said you know maybe they're getting invited to do these ceremonies like you have been um, and not really know what they're getting themselves into and it can yeah you know, it can certainly um, lead to a whole uh, opening can of worms if you're not ready for it that can be difficult um, psychologically and emotionally for a lot of people. Well, at least regarding the humor part, there's a difference between physics from 100 or so years ago. I don't think many people are like, "This is funny." Yeah, I don't know how much how much uh, um, satire they were writing about this back in the early 20th century with Einstein and Bohr and all of those guys. Yeah, look, I spent 15 years working on this one integral. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, any physics PhDs might think that was funny. <laughs> Maybe not anyone else. Okay. Back to you. So when last we spoke, 
Uh, I'd asked you about your experiences in nature and what nature meant to you and then invited you to act on it. Can you remember what you shared and and what you came up with? Yeah, I mean, I think I spent a lot of time kind of reflecting on my experiences in nature. Specifically, I mean, I grew up uh, near the beach in South Florida. So that was, you know, one of the, I think, formative nature experiences that stuck out to me in my mind growing up. And then another really big one for me was when I went uh, went to Montana to work for the U.S. Forest Service. And uh, for me, that was, you know, really integral just because um, not only was I uh, spending time in nature, but I was pretty much living in, uh, you know, natural environment, which uh, was quite new to me, you know, for an extended period, we were out there for um, weeks on end with that, without coming back to civilization. And so that was really uh, eye-opening and it kind of changed my um, way of thinking about the natural world. So, yeah, you know, those are things that I wish that I had more um, kind of immediate access to these days. But yeah, I, I think you know one of the takeaways from our conversation last time was the idea that it would be nice to spend more time in nature, even if it's not in the you know the Rocky Mountains or something. At least getting out where I can uh, get to nature here. Um, I'll say I haven't done a magnificent job of that. I've been able to get out for a couple of hikes. Thankfully, I did do a, a really nice hike out in the Redwoods in uh, Santa Cruz Mountains over in May, which was great because I was there for a conference. Um, and more recently, I had a couple of shorter hikes here in Baltimore area, right around Maryland. But um, nonetheless, it was nice to get out there. Um, and you know, I've been trying to stick with my running, um, at least around the park here where I live, which is Patterson Park just to get outside, you know, around trees and birds and stuff on a regular basis. Um, but yeah, but I haven't really made it much further than that. I am, you know, getting out to the beach for a vacation next weekend. So I'm excited for that. Um, and then um, I'm hoping to get some friends together, do some whitewater rafting in the in August, but um, we'll see. It's always difficult to get things planned in people's schedules these days because you know how how busy everyone is. Well, for someone who says he hasn't done much, it sounds like you've been doing a lot. Although I'm, I'm also curious, how much of those things would you have done anyway? And how much of them did you do for, because of our conversation? And then for either case, whether you did it because of the conversation or not, was there any difference in your emotional experience of it as a result of the conversation? Yeah, those are great questions. It's really hard to say. It kind of is like the quantum observer problem because since we had the uh, conversation, it's hard to say what the you know, what I would have done without having had that conversation. Um, I would say definitely two of those um, would have happened regardless, just because I know that one of them was for uh, a visit to a friend's house um, who lives out in those Santa Cruz mountains. And the other was for a wedding that actually took place up uh, here in Maryland near the top of a mountain. So we had to climb up there to get there. Um, but that was beautiful. Um, I think the other one was much more in line with, and it was actually quite a bit closer to the time that we spoke. Um, and so I'd had the specific intention of trying to plan more outdoor activities. And so that that first hike um, was one that I had done intentionally to try to stay on track there. Um, you know, the running and stuff, that's been more off and on something I've just been doing to get out to the park. But, um, I'm you know, I'm just trying to um, keep that going on a regular routine um, as much as I'm able with my schedule. So hard to say, um, you know, how much of that was really um, uh, impacted by our conversation. I could say at least one of those um, outings was. 
Um, and the other thing, though, I would know is I think I, I definitely was paying a lot more attention to my experience in nature, um, especially the most, I would say, rugged of these hikes was out in um, that at Santa Cruz mountain area. And it was, it was really pretty. It was very steep. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of poison oak around. And um, so, you know, I was keeping my eyes open. I was with a couple of, of my friends uh, and their kids. And so I was also keeping an eye on them. And uh, so some, there's, you know, something about being out there though, I think that um, kind of put me back in touch with that, that sense that I had of being, you know, in a nature, you know, in nature uh, when I was in Montana, where, yeah, there was a uh, risk of peril, but there was also great natural beauty. Um, but I mean, you know, one wrong step and you could be rolling down the side of a very, you know, very high cliff or something. And um, so it kind of gives you that, I think, that level of humility, or at least for me, it does of, you know, you got to be careful around here and you can't just um, be walking around mindlessly because, you know, there are um, things that could uh, it could be a problem if you're not paying attention. Did, I was trying to see how different the experiences were. You said you um, you were paying a bit more attention. Can you go into? Can you share a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was really just about um, when I was moving around, when I was you know keeping an eye on the kids and what they were grabbing onto, or you know when uh, trying to avoid uh, poison oak and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was really just a matter of uh, having a sort of heightened awareness of my surroundings of what was there, um, you know, of what uh, the kids were, were getting into. And, and I, I think being around the kids too had its own level of, um, you know, kind of heightening the experience because, you know, they get out there and they are grabbing leaves and picking up uh, sticks and, you know, looking underneath rocks for bugs. And um, so doing, you know, being with uh, a couple of kids like that who are, you know, getting really excited and pointing at, out um, little things like mushrooms or something that I may not have noticed uh, when I was walking on my own, I think definitely had a, a different flavor to it. And, you know, you're talking about paradigm shifts earlier. And as you were talking about paradigm shifts, it made me think of one of the things that I'm trying to shift. I don't, this would not be a scientific, a scientific revolution, but I'm trying to get a big shift in people from seeing I think we've learned to see nature as something – if we live in cities, nature is something over there and it's not over here. And most people say, oh, no, we're part of nature. But I think they – yeah, they get that, but also they don't get that. And there was something you said in our last conversation. I was just listening to it. And you said there's a lot of good hikes within a 30 to 40-minute drive from here. And I thought that's a pretty big hurdle. Yeah, it is. Unless you drive like all the time, everywhere, all the time, which maybe you do. But I thought that's still getting it elsewhere. And I also felt like I, I I don't remember what I felt at the time, but I suspect I felt something like, do I want to push back on this guy? Of, is it leaving it better than you found it if you're driving 40 minutes each way to get there and back? That, yeah, you got the hike, but that's a lot of a uh, couple gallons of gas there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, those are great points. And, and you're right, you know, we, we kind of say, well, there's there's nature over there, um, and I can get to it. But um, yeah, it's quite, there, that is a hurdle. And, and I mean, I imagine for people who don't have a car, for instance, or who don't have a lot of free time, that makes it 
you know, doubly difficult for them to access this type of stuff. I, that's, I think the way of looking at it, that's the way, that's the, this is the shift is that, is to see that nature is here. It is here, even if it's paved over or even the, I mean, that we, what one gets climbing those mountains. All right. I'm on Manhattan right now, the island of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And if I look back more than uh, a thousand years ago, more than a few hundred years ago, it was actually, I, I read that it was, if someone had made the area around here, an area around Manhattan the size of Yellowstone or Yosemite, if they had made that a national park before, like in, in uh, 1500, then it might be the most biodiverse area on the continent, which is crazy, which is, I mean, now it's one of the least biodiverse areas because it's paved over. Right. So the experience that someone has today walking through Yosemite, say, they could have had here back then. And I don't want to say how I felt most of my life. Well, it's over. Like this is like it's lost for good. Like this is just we we just have to live it this way. Like I could imagine. How do I put it? If we just accept that this is the way things are, we give up and we throw up our hands and say, well, the people who are here who can't get out to other places, they have no access to it, to these experiences that some might have in Yosemite or something or in nature like that. But I want to restore that. I believe that the more we think that way, the easier it is to litter where we are or pave over yet more where we are and not notice what we're losing or to allow pavement, paving over to happen somewhere else. Like if you've never been to the Grand Canyon, then, then someone says, you know, so many people are so many more people than ever are visiting the Grand Canyon. We should make more and more tourist things for them, which I think I read that more people, people spend an average more time looking at videos of the Grand Canyon at the Grand Canyon than looking at the Grand Canyon. And by the flip side, anyone who knows me knows like, okay, so it's uh, July now, but June is Juneberries. And Juneberries, I believe are native to this area and they're so delicious. And there's not a whole lot of Juneberry trees around, but there's some. And I go hog wild when late May now, sometimes because I guess warming, uh, they come a little bit earlier. But in June, there's Juneberries, and I took this scavenging tour of uh, – the one I did was a prospect park, but this guy who leads them does scavenging tours of all over. And there's like all these edible plants, and some of them are, are invasive species. And he says, this is like this species is invasive. The more you eat, the better. They bring goats out to eat the stuff to try to keep it down. Uh -huh. I've never had them so before. I'm like, what? I've never had them before. I have to check it out. Yeah, and it changes. I mean, I was trying to imagine what's it like looking like. So, Prospect Park is hardly uh, wild nature, but I, so I imagine what it would have been like walking around this area when there weren't all these, where it wasn't so paved over. And I imagine there was much more. Like, how do I put it? The I had the most fleeting glimpse of what it was like. But it was more like opportunity. Like, what's around the next corner? I wasn't thinking like, am I going to get eaten by a bear? I was thinking, which is how I think most people think, like nature's trying to kill you all the time. I've definitely heard people say that sentiment. Mm -hmm. But like that guy who lived in with the Matses said that their view is it's, it's nature's abundant and warm and nurturing and safe. And so one of the things, this paradigm shift I'm trying to get is that we, nature is not over there and trying to kill you. And the more we try to get it 
in our daily life without going out of our way, I think the more that we will not accept it being taken away from other people's immediate access. I don't know if I was talking too long there. No, no. I mean, I, I definitely can see where you're going. And, you know, I, I just wonder how do we get that shift to happen mentally for people, especially for people who spend so much of their lives in settings where they have very little exposure to nature and also very little education about the kinds of things that you're talking about. So, you know, the fact that there was so much biodiversity in, in that area uh, near Manhattan, you know, back, uh, you know, a few uh, generations ago, and that now is so different. Um, I think that's, that would be very eye-opening for people to think about, but probably not many folks have had, you know, have thought about that, that too much. One of the big shifts for me in this area of how do we get people to appreciate it and, and work for it and, and value it is, in my experience, you know, I had my first experience inadvertent of trying to avoid packaged food for a week and finding that expecting deprivation sacrifice and instead finding, besides saving money and saving time, much more deliciousness and appreciation of, you know, I my view on a farmer's market changed from like, oh, that's where the rich people buy whatever to realizing, no, this is where the local stuff is. And sure, because there's low supply and high demand of farmer's markets, they're, the farmers are going to bring – you can't fight the market. I mean, low supply, high demand is going to mean high prices. But that's because there aren't enough farmer's markets. I mean, all markets used to be farmer's markets. And now there's much more – anyway, so what I I had the shift and then – as I've done the Spodic method more and more and have it done with me, this process that I walked you through, mm -hmm. I do all these workshops. And so at the beginning when, when there's an odd number of people and people do the Spodic method with me, I used to think – at first I thought, well, how many times can I have it done with me before I run out of things to do? Like, okay, I can hike. I can do this. I can do that. But all right, I'm going to run out of things. That's not what happened though. What happened was the more that people did it with me, the more I would access different connections with nature and come up with different and which access different emotions which led to different things to do Th i mean some things were things like singing as opposed to having my screens on and the more that i sang and, and don't ask me to sing because it's not pretty but <laughs> it a lot of people talk about it in a more sustainable world we'll have we'll actually participate in culture instead of passively watching it so this type of experience of where i liked it i realized that there's an infinite number it, it's not like, here's 10 little things you can do for the environment. A lot of people think, as did I, well, there's so many things I can do. I can not fly. I can um, drive less. I can be vegetarian. And then, then I run out. But that's not what happened. It's skills. The more that I practice, the more that I, the more that I learn to do, the more that I learn more to do. So I see our current culture is in the spiral of isolation leading to not knowing what we're losing, leading to not minding losing more, leading to more isolation on the ex externally. Internally, it's knowing that we're doing something that we don't like, that we think is wrong. I mean, some, this stuff hurts people. It ends people's lives prematurely by the, by the tens of millions annually. And Abraham Lincoln said, the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is do, to do something that you believe is wrong. And I think it's that internal conflict that you can't escape if you keep doing it that leads to suppression and denial. So that's like this vicious cycle of suppressing and denying 
but you've convinced yourself that it's good, so you do it more, and that leads you to suppress and deny more. And the way out of that is practicing the basics of anything, uh, practicing the basics of, of music or sports or uh, drama or any performance type thing. It's the opposite of a vicious cycle. The more you get better at it, the more you want to do more. The more you do more, the more you get better at it and so forth. So this is like, I'm trying to reverse this cycle instead of a vicious cycle of, of increasing, decreasing self-awareness and more suppression and then doing it more and to more discovery and so forth. Now, if I go back in time to when all humans lived sustainably, so going back pre-agriculture and certainly some agricultural societies as well, everyone was sustainable because cultures, I mean, every child learned it the way I learned English. You just, I don't know how I learned English, I just did. Now, if I try to learn a new language as an adult, it's a bit harder, but I still have to practice, 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 practice. If we wanted sustainability, it's to practice, 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 practice. Not to look at things like picking up litter as like, oh, well, that doesn't change the world. That's not worth doing. That's like saying Yo-Yama playing a scale is not worth doing because no one wants to go to Carnegie Hall to see him play scales. But that's how you get to Carnegie Hall is doing everything. And I'm trying to give people that vision, give people the recognition that the more they practice, the more that they'll learn and do. And I want, I certainly don't want to stop people from going to Santa Cruz and going up the particular beauty and experience of that particular location, but I want to help them find it in their daily life, in everything they do all the time, the potential that it can be there and increasing it all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a great uh, goal, you know, and a, a really important vision to have that, uh, to try to put people in touch with that. And, you know, how do we do that and how do we get them there is, you know, I think one of the the main things and how do we transform the culture to just have, a greater intrinsic appreciation for these types of issues, which um, I think, you know, oftentimes you're right. This is something that's really glossed over or that we don't uh, get as much guidance in, in terms of just understanding our place in the natural world and, and, you know, what we can do to help or make it, um, you know, something that uh, is more important, you know, to us in terms of our priorities. Part of my strategy is having developed this method. And is it the best way? It's the best way I know. If someone can do something better, I'm happy to do that. But this does work. And that's why on the podcast, I try to find influential people. And so someone who I see at the forefront of a paradigm shift, you fit the bill. Uh, someday I'll get Taylor Swift on as well. And she's, well, she's probably in an airplane right now. <laughs> but if she were to start doing a few things more thoughtfully, you know, genuinely, authentically, not because I'm finger wagging, but because if, if she's got her experience, something like for her is what your experience in the mountains or at the ocean was. And she shares that genuinely, authentically, and she tries. And maybe the first time it doesn't go as planned, but the second time she does it a bit more because she's not measuring it by the magnitude, but by the joy the magnitude of the actions, but by the joy, then I could see hundreds of millions of people changing, opening up to something that's been, that was once our birthright, this joy, discovery, what you're talking about with the kids, turning the rocks over and so forth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's all here. Then I do these workshops. That's the top down part. The bottom up part is the workshops that I hope to grow in a way that like CrossFit has or Weight Watchers or Alcoholics Anonymous, where people meet in groups and share, have a technique to get them 
to, you know, and say CrossFit, they have to learn nutrition and anatomy and um, sleep and things like that. It's not easy, but, and they have to lift all these weights and sweat, but they like it and they come back for more. I, I don't want to, I'm not into it. And so people talk about it being cultish, but I, I'm not looking for cult, but that type of magnitude of change, overcoming challenge where it's intrinsically the, the, the doing is the joy. Yeah. I, you were asking, I don't know if you're asking those questions um, uh, rhetorically or, but I'm like answering them. I'm trying to. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. You know, I think, uh, I think it's very much uh, in line with what you're, what, you know, the type of work that you're trying to espouse is, is that people have these experiences. So that's, I think, fantastic. Yeah. And I feel like there's something about the psychedelic that, I mean, I think I talked to you last time about how when I read or heard, when I heard um, about people talking about their peak experiences on these um, trips, is that the word? Do you say trips or yeah, yeah, experiences? Yeah, sure. Experiences. I mean, people say trips a lot. And how much they sounded like in magnitude. Like, I, I keep hearing the phrase uh, on, on par with their firstborn child, having a firstborn child. And it so resembled what I get when people talk about their experiences, talk about nature. I think I said this last time, but I feel like there's something there about some commonality. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the big overlaps there is that, you know, in the natural world, uh, when we're faced with these big, big entities like mountains and the sky and clouds and, you know, storms and you know, this stuff that is so primal and powerful that it, you know, has to um, elicit this sense of awe in a person um, that they're, you know, facing something that's so vast. And I think in a similar way, when you're, you know, having your first kid or, you know, having a very powerful psychedelic experience, that you can also have the same sort of sense of awe, which does bring a kind of childlike wonder um, but also, um, you know, this feeling of of newness, this feeling of, uh, you know, intense, uh, I mean, it can be excitement, it can be reverence, I mean, but really powerful emotions. And, you know, so it's a, it's really a marker, you know, that this is something that is um, awesome, you know, this is something that is powerful. And, and so I think um, people can have that experience both with psychedelics or in nature. And, you know, Maslow, as the originator of the term peak experiences, it talked about the you know different ways that people could get there. And there are a number of practices, um, but going back to people like Thoreau, you know, who predated Maslow, of course, you know, they found a lot of their inspiration uh, by going into the natural world. And, and so I think that is a really uh, relevant here that, you know, that's a, a pathway or a portal, if you will, for people to, experiences these very strong transformative emotions and hopefully you know do something with that and so it's not just a matter of chasing the experience like riding a roller coaster and then going on with your life but um you know kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about people taking ayahuasca um or um even you know people encountering nature um you know in certain ways um there could be a way where you go, you know, you stare at the video of the Grand Canyon, 
and you kind of come back and you didn't, you know, didn't really get much out of that experience. So, you know, how do we encourage people to really have these authentic, engaging experiences um, that then also leads to things in their lives that they can do differently and, you know, in particular things that um, might be like more sustainable behaviors? Yeah, I I don't know the details of your work. Like I haven't seen a session, but I bet I don't want to. I, I don't want to make a bet. Like I I would love to see a, per, uh, a pursuit a um a research research into like have have one group do go through your experience and another group be taken to nature. And have them spend, I don't know exactly what the experience would be, but something where they're really immersed in, um, maybe it would be solitude, maybe it'd be together. I'm not exactly sure. And see if that helps them in some comparable way. And then the follow up would be something where back in regular life, back in some place where they're really living, say where it's paved over to be able to connect with that experience, like with every bite of food. Assuming they're eating fresh fruits and vegetables as opposed to um, McDonald's, or and if that could give them, I bet that there's a lot of people, there's a lot of issues that, um, I suspect that our isolation and our disconnect from just having trees around, and it's not just forest bathing because people talk about a lot about the research into just like kind of walking in the forest. Yeah, but I think there's also peak experiences that you could create, and I suspect it could help people solve a lot of their problems, the, a big experience. And then they would be able, if, if, if done effectively, they could connect that to life. And then they'd want to have more and more fresh fruits and vegetables, more trees, more access to forests and ocean beaches and lakes and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely see some very uh, powerful potential there. And, you know, we, I used to work with um, incarcerated adolescents and we used to take them hiking basically. And, um, you know, going into the mountains uh, in Northern California again, uh, which is where I went to graduate school. And I thought that was, you know, that seemed really powerful for them, you know, in terms of, and these are kids that were um, mainly coming from San Francisco uh, in the city. And so they had very little exposure to nature prior to that. And so when they got out there, it was new territory for them, um, but it was really fascinating to see them get comfortable and start to, I think, befriend, you know, in a way, the natural environment and see that it was something that they that they enjoyed or that they were getting something out of. Um, yeah, it, you know, so I think you're right. There is, um, and I know that there is like outward bound types of programs and that those, I think that that has a lot of um, potential to help people kind of get in touch and have these really important peak experiences. Yeah, and I want to, what we're calling it also, it's funny because we're calling it a peak experience, but I want, I think that that was normal for most of human history. So I want to, like most people spent, had access all the time to walking in solitude in the forest or, you know, going out on the beach or swimming in a river or something like that. and. What we now call, oh, here's a question I like to ask people. You know, now we have like heirloom 
tomatoes, all organic. Do you know what we used to call organic heirloom tomatoes? What? Tomatoes. <laughs> like that was normal. That That's what was, you know, and, and I think, I suspect that produce all tasted better a long time ago. Uh, I mean, stuff from a local farm with a farmer who cares about it or your own garden probably tastes really great, but the stuff shipped to the East Coast from the West Coast bred for stability and color rather than taste and nutrition. Actually, I think it was Michael Pollan went to visit some guy who, no, no, it was um, uh, Dan Barber, I think, a chef here in New York. And he went to visit a guy who breeds, a plant breeder, I think. And the guy, so breed, like companies come and say, we'd like a plant that has this properties. Can you make it happen? And he'll, you know, crossbreed and pollinate and whatever, whatever it takes to make that happen. And so Dan Barber came in and said, I wonder if you could, uh, we make these, um, I think it was um, squashes, uh, butternut squashes. And I said, can we breed it to taste better? And the guy says, no one has ever asked me to breed for flavor. It's always been for business things of, you know, what would save money, make it more efficient, grow faster. But no one ever made it, came to him to breed it for, him to taste, for it to taste better. In any case, um, I lost my train of thought. I, it was something about the normal, like to restore what we're now calling peak experiences, which implies to me outside of norm, like that normal is not peak. So if that, to make that the normal experience, that it's a tragedy if we lose it. So we want to restore it and make living in an urban jungle without access to that. That's a severe problem. Like if our imagine our society looked at it that way for people not to have access to parks, at least parks and trees and, uh, birdsong, if that were viewed as a problem by everyone, I'd like to live in that world. I feel now it's viewed with resignation and capitulation. Unfortunately, I think you're right. And again, I think a lot of people haven't thought that hard about the problem at all. And that, you know, the fact that, you know, the type of world that we face now is very different from what uh, our ancestors were living in, even, you know, a couple of generations ago. Is there some parallel with psychedelics? Were psychedelics more normal? Do you know historically? Was it some like a rite of passage or something? I mean, I, I guess it would change with place and time. Do you know? Absolutely, culturally. I mean, there were there were places where they were not being used regularly. There were places where they were used regularly, um, but you know, and the practices around them differed from culture to culture. Um, but you know, I think more than anything, um, just the intimacy with the natural world is something that you're right that we had um you know as a species much more so you know in the time leading up to industrialization and you know since we you know hit the 20th century i think you've seen a lot more of the alienation from the natural world and i think that that can also go hand in hand with things like uh, you know the idea that psychedelics uh, have some sort of valuable role to play in terms of giving us these experiences, um, which, you know, psychedelics, many of them are coming from the natural world. Last time I, I talked about a picture that I saw on the Johns Hopkins site about one of the experiences is like someone's lying on a couch and two people are next to them. Mm -hmm. Do you ever do that? Are they always indoors? Do you ever do them outside in nature? Well, we can't when they won't let us, but you know, lots of people go, you know, do these retreats out in natural settings um, you know, down in the Amazon or in different parts of the world. Um, but yeah, because of, you know, the liability that we have at Hopkins, 
Um, we typically do them indoors, uh, you know, and probably the closest that we've gotten so far to taking people outside is actually using virtual reality to send them into a natural like setting, you know, during their experience. I got to say, this is crazy to think that there's, I can understand the liability issues because of our litigious society. Yeah. Do you internally, I mean, you respect the litigious, you respect that, the the law and the liability and so forth, but is there part of the team that feels like um, this really, we should, if we could, if that were not an issue, would you want to test it in, to bring people to a forest or a beach or wherever they they felt was appropriate for themselves? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's something that's going to happen a lot more in the future, especially if you see approvals of these uh, types of uh, treatments that, you know, that especially for high-end clients who can pay that they're going to be able, and this is already the case anyways. I mean, if you got a lot of money and you want to go to Costa Rica or Brazil or Peru and, you know, do uh, a ceremony with mushrooms or with uh, ayahuasca or something else like that, you know, in a very uh, beautiful natural setting, including, you know, things like in the mountains or in the, in the forest or the jungle or on the beach, you know, that that's going to be accessible. And it already is, you know, for some people in some settings. Oh, I meant for the research though, not just, um, uh, of course people are doing that. For the research, uh, I mean, it will be a while. I mean, we might be able to get like a little courtyard or something where we can take people outside. Um, but from a scientific standpoint, that also creates problems because um, there's uh, all sorts of variability that happens in that, um, that, experience if you take somebody outside one day and they have a beautiful sunny day and you know there's birds chirping and then the next day you try to take somebody outside and it's you know 20 degrees there's ice on the ground and it's miserable sleet coming down you know they may not have the same type of experience and so a lot of what we do in terms of setting setting is actually specifically uh you know with an eye towards standardization um so that we can say everybody pretty much had as close as possible in terms of the experience that we're trying to engineer here and this is what happened um you know if you start um changing things up um and even things like you know where they're doing it or what the weather's like then that you know can have some sort of impact that we don't understand quite yet that makes sense from a scientific standpoint i do predict that if it's ever possible to or if there are experiments done that there'll be some discovery of it going that the being in nature of the person's choice is probably going to augment the experience. Oh, I agree hundred percent. I think that that would be a huge piece of, uh, you know, optimizing set and setting is figuring out how do you really make uh, this, you know, how do you make this work best for people? And I suspect for many people being in certain types of natural settings uh, would actually be superior to that, to this, you know, laying on a couch, for instance. Now I want to join your team and start a new project there, but I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> well, we have guys in, uh, at NYU up there in, in New York doing work as well. So you might you might talk to them. Um, but you guys, like you said, you probably have access to less uh, natural setting than we do over here. Or you might be able to take people to Central Park or something. Who knows? Now you make me think. I had a guest, um, uh, Catherine Garcia, who very narrowly missed becoming mayor of New York City. And I asked her what her favorite part of New York was, and she said the national parks within the city. And 
Uh, so it led me to ride my bike out to Gateway National Park out by JFK, and it was a really great experience. So there are there is. I've never been there. Yeah, I mean, it's part of it is like JFK is right there, but there are a few places where, if you were behind just the right hill, you could still hear the traffic, but you could only see out to the Atlantic, and you couldn't. See, if you look back, you just see the 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 dune, I guess, or the hill that behind you, not the city, and. So I want to see if you close your eyes, you could imagine you were somewhere else, but it's really, if you close your eyes, you start hearing the traffic more. <laughs> but I've ridden my bike up to Bear Mountain State Park and others, there's other stuff around. Well, now you got me thinking, maybe I'll go over there and walk over into that department and say, hey, talk to Albert Garcia Romeo. And he said, maybe I could talk to you guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, definitely. They're, they're, they have a lot of medical stuff going on, but I think that there's a lot of overlap again in terms of therapeutic stuff that, that could be done even with just the nature without the psychedelics, but, you know, combining them certainly couldn't, uh, I think could yield some fruit. All right. Well, now I got that percolating on the back burner in my mind. So I thank you for that. Uh, anything else to, I, I feel like I'm taking a lot of your time and, and I've indulged so much. I feel like in your case, I've probably spoken more than in, with most, most guests. I hope I didn't bore you. I don't know. No, I thought it was a great conversation today. It's nice to check back in and, and connect. Um, like I said, I am looking forward to doing a little bit more outdoors uh, stuff this uh, summer. You know, one thing I didn't mention is that uh, I had done a couple of um, trash cleanups uh, here in, in my neighborhood over the last few months. And so that, I think, has also been in the same spirit of, you know, trying to improve the neighborhood. That's one thing that I have to say about Baltimore in particular is that we have an awful lot of littering. And so, um, you know, it's it's nice when we can get a few people together to pick up trash in the park or even just walk around the block and pick stuff up, um, you know, just to make it less of an eyesore because uh, you certainly, it certainly accumulates around here. The biggest effect for me of picking up litter is helping me not buy things that are packaged. So it's led to more, like, it's not what you'd expect. But it's one of those scales. It's one of the basics to practice that the more one does it, the more natural it gets, the less tolerance one has for litter. And the more rewarding, at least in my case, that it feels to pick it up. And it feels weird to see people pass it by. And I know that they think, well, it's dangerous to pick it up or I didn't put it there. You know what's crazy? We have – it used to be there was nothing – anything you threw away like uh, an apple core or a stem or something like that. You eat the grapes and then you drop the um, stem, I guess, whatever connects the grapes to the plant, mm-hmm. the plant, the the vine. You could drop it on the ground and eventually a goat will eat it or it'll turn into dirt. Now we have all this plastic. We have sanitation systems that haul it out. Now, it used to be to a garbage dump that was every, at least everything in the dump was biodegradable, but now most of it's not biodegradable. I, I can't believe how much plastic we still use for stuff. I mean, especially knowing the fact that it isn't that biodegradable and that it is basically going to be around forever. Um, it just, it blows my mind. Cause I remember hearing that when I was just a kid, you know, when I was eight years old and being like, well, when are we going to stop making and using this stuff? And I mean, there must be alternatives, you know, but it's, it's wild to me that that's still such common practice. Well, people talk about the shale gas revolution and it basically made plastic free. I mean, they weren't profitable selling just the fossil fuels, but plastic was another output of it. So they had to make whatever money they could. And they're like, okay, more, more and more plastic. 
and there's this cultural view of like, oh, what's so bad about it is what's so great about it is that it has all these properties, but we didn't need it before. And most people, when they think, oh, well, what about all these medical procedures that it enables? So we're saving tens of thousands of lives and sacrificing millions and not like, but also um, on top of a sanitation system, which in New York City is $1.6 billion a year, that takes stuff from garbage cans to landfills. But on top of that, we pay people to go around and pick up litter to put it in the trash cans. Like people, as if it's not going to last for thousands of years on its own or at least centuries. Like it's bad enough that this stuff exists, but we don't even like, we just drop it on the ground. We as a culture. Yeah. And you know, people are like, well, I don't. Well, do you own stock in Starbucks, in Coca-Cola, in anything along the way? Because if so, you're paying for it. And yeah, to me, it's crazy that we have people to pick up litter on top of a sanitation system. This is what I'm trying to reverse. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's, you know, one of many enormous, you know, environmental issues that we need to face in our lifetime. So, you know, whatever we can do to correct that, I think is very important. Well, I thank you for your time. And, and I want to leave, if it happens that your experiences in nature remote from where you are, I mean, you talked about jogging near you, but a lot of the other stuff seemed like it was far away. If any of it leads to you finding things closer to home, or even not going out of your way, just experiencing that. I'd love to have you back and, and continue the conversation at your option. Absolutely. Well, I'll be in touch. You know, I know that we have each other's contact information, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to explore in this area and uh, see what I can, you know, get myself into here that is in line with some of what we were talking about today. And yeah, you know, I'll, I'll certainly keep you posted. I look forward to hearing about it. Thank you very much. All right. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.